This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to DSC's Campfires with Larry Wysoon. The unique blend of hunting, conservation, and the outdoor lifestyle delivered in an entertaining, informative fashion that only a veteran outdoorsman can do. DSC Campfires is brought to you by DSC, the Dallas Safari Club, conservation, education, and hunter advocacy. Hornady, accurate, deadly, dependable. Trigicon, brilliant aiming solutions. Ruger, rugged, reliable firearms. Burnham Brothers Game Calls, the callingest call made. Double Nickel Taxidermy, where hunting memories are preserved. Now, here's your host, Larry Wysoon. Springtime, flowers are starting to bloom, bees are buzzing, birds are singing, gobblers are gobbling. It's springtime, it's spring turkey season, and I guess everybody out there that loves that part of what the springtime brings in terms of turkey season is, is about to embark on their spring turkey hunt, or maybe they've already been hunting for a while. I know in such states as Florida, it's been going on for a while here in Texas where I live. It's about to start, usually starts about the first part of April for the northern part, and then begins a little bit later in, in, in uh, other parts as well, too. But uh Spring turkey seasons are going on, and I know everybody's excited. Even if you're not a turkey hunter, there's something special about being outside and hearing those gobblers going at it in the morning and sometimes really almost all day long. When I was growing up, we had no turkeys. <laughs> I say that with tongue-in-cheek because we did have turkeys, but they were all domestic birds, and, and all the little farmers in our part of the country where I grew up there, not far from the Colorado River or the banks of Cummins Creek, a lot of the small farmers and ranchers had wild turkeys that they kept for eggs, that they kept for somewhat, I guess, maybe feathers on occasion, but particularly uh, the young were harvested, if you will, and, and comes 
wintertime, the, uh, the, sometimes some of the old gobblers and old hens were, were taken down too as well to be turned into Thanksgiving and Christmas dinner. So when it came to springtime with me growing up, turkeys were not part of the picture. That didn't come until a lot later when we started having spring turkey seasons in different parts of the state of Texas. But springtime to me meant fishing fishing and a lot of fishing. Every opportunity I could to get away before I started grade school, my granddad would come by every morning and pick me up and before we'd leave our little place to head to one of the local creeks, we would dig worms, earthworms that were, as I recall, sometimes 12, 14, 16 inches long. And you'd have to dig up but two or three of them if you could pull the entire worm out of its hole to uh, have enough bait to fish pretty much most of the day. Those were absolutely fantastic times. We very seldom caught anything of any size. The, the creeks were filled with small sunfish that we call perch. There were some small catfish as well. And, and very occasionally we'd catch a bass that back then in that little German-speaking community where I grew up, those were called trout. Now we had freshwater drum or was called Gasper Goo and, and uh, some channel cats and blue cats and those kind of things in the little creeks. And, Occasionally we'd get into those and occasionally we'd put out some trot lines and some drop lines and and catch those. And occasionally as well too, back then we would catch freshwater eels. A little creek that my granddad lived on was called Cummins Creek and it ran into the Colorado River which ran into the Gulf of Mexico. And quite often when we put out any kind of lines, if you want to call them that, being trot lines or drop lines or limb lines as some people call them in the southeast, you'd end up with a fair size eel on the end of one that got hooked. And uh, I was with this about my all this with my brother Glenn a few days ago and he said, do you remember when we used to drop, use those drop lines and trot lines? He said, you'd walk up and if that line was vibrating, he said, you know, remember it was actually vibrating. There was an eel on it. And those eels, whenever they became hooked, they would just sit there. Or, I'm sorry, not sit there in the water, just spin and spin and spin and spin until, I mean, they'd make a huge mess and they were very, very slimy as well, too. So absolutely a great mess. Occasionally we would just unhook them and, and drop them back in the water. And occasionally we would use them for... Uh, or cut bait, and occasionally, rather rarely, did we eat eel. But I recall numerous times in the past where, I'm saying numerous times, maybe 10 or 15 times that I recall where my grandmother would fillet the eels and mix them with a little cornmeal and then would almost make what we today call liver and onions, that kind of dish where it was basically the eels and softened or sauteed onions and butter, if you will. The eels had a little bit of a different flavor compared to the other fish that we were catching, the, the, the catfish and the, the freshwater drum and, and sometimes, as I said, occasionally a bass and, of course, sometimes some really big sunfish as well, too. But it did. It had a different flavor that I really can't describe. And it was one of those things that wasn't really one of my favorite things to eat, but it was certainly something to eat. And, the onions were always really good as well, too, when she finished with them. And occasionally we'd have fried potatoes and kind of fried potatoes and onions and maybe their version of homemade pork and beans with a lot of salt pork in them that was just out of this world good. So I didn't really mind the, the eels as much as I uh, might have had thought about them if, if that was the only thing we had to eat that day. But 
fishing was so big and so important for us during that time frame. We ate pretty much everything that we caught. The the small fish that we'd catch, we they were had scales. We would scale those and and uh, cut the head off and the, and maybe the fins and and uh, eviscerate them and and kind of dump them in cornmeal, seasoned cornmeal, and and put them in a big old black cast iron skillet filled with with lard that came from one of the hogs that we butchered the year prior or back during the winter time and and you talk about absolutely fantastic good eating i mean it was out of this world good <clears throat> had to be careful of the bones because we in those situations well sometimes they were fried crisp enough where you could almost eat the bones and everything kind of as one big bite but uh didn't really didn't really do a whole lot of catch and release. Occasionally we would when we caught a whole bunch of fish and, and had more than what we needed or more than what we and our, our friends needed. But we also did not overfish anything either. We had some some potholes, kind of big big potholes, you want to call them that, in the creek. And we'd fish one one year and then move to the, the next one the following year. So there was always kind of a rotation of where there was never a situation where there weren't some sizable fish in, in one of these little stretches of, of deep water that we had along that creek. One of these days, I, I really want to go back. It, that's too kind of where I started fly fishing. As a uh, as a youngster, I saw a, a, a TV show, I think it was, of somebody and read about Joe Brooks, who was then the, I think he was the fishing editor for Outdoor Life. This goes back into the 60s. And, and he continually wrote every opportunity he had a chance to go fish for bonefish. He would fish for bonefish. Uh, down on the on Bimini Coast or wherever it was. And I read all about that and thought, man, how cool would it be to go on a bone fishing excursion and saved up some money, bought this fly rod. And, and back then, too, you could buy flies like 6 to 12 for a dollar, if you will, from Cabela's once they were, when they were first getting started years and years ago. And from a one-inch ad in Outdoor Life and Field and Stream, well, I ordered some of these trout nymphs and figured out that one of the best things to do was, since it was sight fishing, kind of like you did with bonefish, the little creek there, Cummins Creek, there was shallow water in certain areas to where it would be a long stretch, meaning maybe you know, anywhere from 30 to maybe 100 yards long, and the water would be crystalline clear, and it may be anywhere from a little past ankle to about mid-thigh deep. And I can remember easing in there real slow and barely moving my feet because there were quite a few... Uh, carp in that area that we called suckers if you will and they traveled in a bunch and i'd ease along real slow and i'd spot a bunch of them up ahead of me and i'd go to work in that fly and work in that fly and i'd try to drop that fly that little trout nymph from somewhere in the front of where these uh the suckers were moving in, in my direction or maybe even moving in another direction but uh drop it in there and hope that they would suck it up and and as they were feeding off the bottom and surprisingly more frequently than i thought might would happen i would hook <laughs> hook one of those suckers and oh my god the fight was on those things would carry on like you can't believe and one of those things that i really want to try to go back to to do and and, and particularly here as we get a little bit farther into the spring and i've got a little bit more time to uh, to get back to the that Cummins Creek area where I grew up. I think it'd be absolutely fantastic to get back in there. My fly rod's a little bit more sophisticated than it was back then. And and uh, 
Over the years, I've picked up a few trout nymphs and a few other things that I think might work really well for kind of a spot and stock uh, carp fishing trip, if you will. So one of these days, I'm going to try to come back and tell you a little bit more about that as well, too. But uh, I think it'd be a tremendous amount of fun to do. And, and uh, we may eat some of them, but that may be one of those fish that I catch and release to because uh, they do have a tendency to have a lot of little feather bones and to me unless you catch a fair size one yeah maybe the best thing to do is to just kind of release it and and give it an opportunity to grow a little bit taller and a little bit longer and a little bit fatter into the future but in the process of that too i hope to do a little fishing for some of the fun sunfish that we have that area of the creek where i, I fished a lot used to have a lot of very colorful long-eared sunfish now these are or, or panfish, if you will. They don't grow to be very large, but uh, they're extremely colorful, particularly the males going into the, the spring breeding season and bright oranges and greens and absolutely beautiful, beautiful fish. And then, too, on Cummins Creek, there is a... Uh, we have some largemouth bass, but then we also have some Guadalupe bass or spotted bass, if you will. They don't get quite as large as the... Uh, the largemouth bass by any means, but they're lots of fun to catch. They really remind me a whole lot more of fishing for uh, for smallmouth, and they put up a tremendous fight. So you're going to see if what we can get into in, in that respect. Coming up in the next day, the recording this today and, and tomorrow, whatever the case might be, uh, I'm going to spend some time with Luke Clayton fishing Richland Chambers Lake near Corsicana, Texas. It's springtime. As I mentioned, crappie are about to start spawning, and there is a, a fishing guide there. His name is Chris Moody, uh, and Chris is one of those guys that uh, I want to come back, and uh, I'll give you his email address and his confirmation, or his, his contact information, actually. We'll try to do that. The Not this particular uh podcast but hopefully the next one but gonna get together with chris and, and luke and we're gonna go fish for crappie uh saw a couple of facebook sightings that he did that they were catching their limits and they were catching crappie up to about 12 14 inches now those of you know that fished for crappie a little bit know that that's that's pretty good size. white 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 crappie if you will and Apparently, they're in some fairly shallow water. And one of the things Chris does, you don't fish with minnows. You fish with a, uh, a little lid head type jig that he ties. And he ties them in a lots of different color combinations. And when he finds one that works, he'll tie a few more of those. And uh, that's what he uses or his clients. And he used to catch crappie. Now, to me, there are two types of fish that I really, really like. Now, I like eating fish, but I have to admit that walleye is one of my favorite fish. Unfortunately, where I live, uh, we no longer have walleye, and the reason I say no longer is other than maybe in some of the lakes a little bit farther north in northern Texas, years ago, they were stocked. But a lot of the walleye have gone by the wayside in those, those particular lakes. So if I want to go fishing for walleye, I have to get somewhere into the Midwest to pretty much do so. But that's one outstanding eating fish as far as freshwater is concerned. But I have to admit that I probably like sunfish. Uh, sunfish. I do. <laughs> I like all the sunfish family, but I really like the crappie, the white crappie or the black crappie. And 
I found out a few years ago that uh, my friends over in Louisiana call the crappie a sockeye. Uh, they called me one day and said, hey, you fishing for sockeye yet? And I'm going, sockeye? I have no idea what you're talking about. And they started describing the fish, and it didn't take me long to, to determine that that's exactly what they were talking about is fishing for crappie. But getting back to Chris Moody, Chris is... Uh, is known worldwide for his alligator gar fishing. Uh, he and his clients every year, and he fishes some unbelievable waters, and they catch some unbelievably big, huge, like 100-pound-plus alligator gar. And something else I want to try to do with him a little bit later in, in the summertime, I understand, is the best time when it gets warm to catch those. So while I'm with Chris on this crappie fishing trip, I'm going to try to spend some time with him uh, not only trying to get a, a podcast to have him talk about crappie fishing, but to do a lead-in on an alligator gar fishing trip that I want to do a little bit later in the year and maybe involve one of my daughters as well, too. Maybe take Teresa, my daughter, with me, who absolutely loves to fish and generally has a little bit more time to, and leeway to get away from work than my my other daughter Beth does but if it works out really well then sometime in the future maybe I can take both of them on an alligator gar fishing trip with uh, with Chris Moody but Chris as I mentioned is is an ace when it comes to fishing for essentially shallow water crappie now when these crappie are spawning as they're doing now and now being kind of the central middle part of, of March and probably will continue doing so into April they tend to be very aggressive and as I mentioned he uses strictly little jigs that he ties himself and as i mentioned too he's got a bunch of different colors that he puts together and he uses one and if he finds one that works you know he'll, he'll use that one a little bit more kind of thing and uh talked to luke clayton about all this and and luke of course and you you know is an outdoor writer he's a dear friend of many years and for about the last Oh my gosh, 13 years. Luke and I have been doing a radio show called uh, Campfire Talk with uh, Larry Weissoon. Actually, it's a segment within, a 15-minute segment within the show that he does uh, called Luke Clayton Outdoors, or Luke, Luke Clayton and Friends Outdoors, I think, or something like that. Luke, I apologize if I'm getting it wrong, but... Uh, Luke and I have been together on these on these radio shows now for a long, long time. He and I also do a uh, every other week radio show show called hunting wire radio where it is strictly devoted to hunting and uh we don't talk about all the other fishing trips and things that we might be doing that we do on the radio but uh talk a little bit about technique about some of the places we've been and try to make it as fun as we can but also try to impart a little bit of knowledge here and there that he and i have gained over the last oh gosh between the two of us probably over 100 years of spending time outdoors and hunting in, in Texas and, and uh, with me particularly in other parts of the world as well too. Luke and I also do another podcast that together and it's called uh, Sporting Classics Campfire Talk with Larry Weissman and Luke Clayton and it is a weekly so you can go to sportingclassics.com uh, or uh, if you're on Facebook go to Sporting Classics Daily and every week Luke and I have got a uh, podcast there usually runs about 15 20 minutes fairly short but uh again we there we get to talk about hunting fishing and the outdoor lifestyle and absolutely have a blast doing it i i, I thank the world of luke and i'm very very fortunate that i get to spend time with him he's a 
has been around for a few days, as they say, and uh, has spent a tremendous amount of time, particularly in Texas. Uh, for years, he was the fishing editor for one of the major newspapers in in the Dallas area as well, too. And he continues to write a lot of different places, and, and uh, he's involved in, I think, like almost 50 different newspapers where he has a, a weekly column as well, too. So very knowledgeable, loves to hunt hogs, one of the better, if not one of the best, campfire cooks I've ever had the opportunity to partake a meal of which he has cooked. He loves cooking in cast iron skillets and cast iron Dutch ovens, if you will, and, and something that I share with him that I enjoyed doing too, but oh my gosh, I, I'm, I'm way behind when it comes to the cooking ability that, that Luke Clayton has when it in dealing with uh, cast iron cookery sort of thing. But I know this much. He cooks it, and I love to eat it. So I got a feeling the next time that we get together, after we have this trip that we're going on with Chris Moody, uh, our next get-together is going to probably involve uh, a little bit of, of fried fish, if I were not mistaken. We do also, as you know, a TV show, if you want to call it that, called The Sportsman's Life that we do with Jeff Rice that's on Pride Outdoor Network. It, too, is a weekly show, and it is really kind of a fun show in the fact that uh, whatever happens when we go hunting or fishing, that's what we show. If we catch something, fabulous. If we don't, we show it. We try to figure out why. Same thing on hunts. And... Uh, those are some other places. It, it's available on Pride Outdoor Network, and it's also available on, on Roku. And, and uh, of course, you know, we're, we've changed the name of my podcast here to Campfires with Larry Wyson and, and want to do more in the future in terms of, of telling some hunting stories. Now, I want to come back to the fact that I mentioned a while ago, Chris Moody, with one of the things I hope to do, <clears throat> excuse me, while we're on this fishing trip, that to just kind of record the cord live as uh, I'll, I'll try to set up a camera or a speaker or something like that where we just kind of record what we're doing while we're fishing and uh maybe you'll hear some giggles and you'll hear some laughter in the background but I want to set it up to where basically you're going to be there with us so i'm hoping that the 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 podcast after this one that episode you'll join us because Really, that'll give me an opportunity to ask Chris a bunch of questions, and Luke can interject some things here and there. So, as we go into the to, to future, I want to try to do a few more of these things of, of actually, well, like I've done some of these in the past where we're just kind of sitting around the campfire and talking. Or, you know, when you're hunting, most of the time you're going to be pretty quiet. You don't want to be out there talking and telling stories and all those kind of things while you're actually hunting. But the beauty of fishing is. That's something you can do. We're going to put that speaker up, if you will, and, and if you hear catching a fish, you'll hear the splashing of the water and maybe a few other things. And, and, and uh, you know, hopefully it'll be something that'll be enjoyable for you guys. Uh, I know it, I'm going to enjoy it kind of thing. Springtime, too, I want to get back to hunting because hunting is always in the forefront when it comes to me. And I want to talk a little bit about this morning about scopes. I've, I've got a bunch of hunts coming up this year, and as a result of that, I am putting a, a new Trigicon Huron scope on a couple of my guns. Uh, 
With it, I will feel very comfortable about out to three to four hundred yards. These do not have external adjustments, turret adjustments, if you will. These are more or less fixed, uh, like three to ten, three to nine uh, by forty, and but with Stadia wire underneath. And we've talked a little bit about Luke and I have talked about Stadia wire in the past. He's an old surveyor, and he would talk tell me about what Stadia actually means, but. With this particular scope, you sighted in dead on at, at 300, I'm sorry, sighted in dead on at 100 yards. And according to what caliber and load that you use, there's some stadia wire below the the, the central crosshair, the one in the center, actually. And uh, you use the second wire like it for 200 yards, the next one for like 300 yards, the next one for 400 yards. So you can really shoot out to probably 400 yards fairly comfortably. Now, the only way to do that is to spend a lot of time on the range and learn your capabilities with a firearm, but with that particular firearm and also with that particular scope, and then actually set up targets out to those distances and see how close you are to hitting the bullseye at 100, 200, 300, and 400 yards. Then you can go from there once you get into the field. Very often, we, we we see these scopes that go up to 20, 25 power, and to me, those are very much tactical scopes. They're not so much hunting scopes, even though a lot of people now are in shooting into long range. And I'm one of those that shoots long range at paper and steel, and when it comes to hunting, my goal is always to get as absolutely close as earthly possible before I pull the trigger. That to me, where's the challenge of hunting comes in. It's not a shooting challenge. If I want a shooting challenge, I'm gonna set up some targets out to 1,000, 1,200 yards, and that will be my shooting challenge rather than hunting. Again, I love getting close to the animals before I pull the trigger. And, and uh, if somebody wants to shoot long range and you're very proficient in terms of hunting long range, if that's something you really, really feel like you need to do, then and if it gets you a field and gets you out there shooting, gets you out there buying hunting lessons, I'm all for it. But uh, for me personally, my my challenge in hunting comes in trying to get as close as I possibly can. That's one of the reasons I like those two and a half to ten, three to ten, three to nine scopes with a 40 millimeter or uh, maybe a 42 millimeter front objective. I like the 30 millimeter tubes as opposed to the one inch tube because it allows for a little bit more light transmission. Light transmission, too, is dependent upon a lot in terms of the coatings that they put on the lenses. The uh, The coating on the lenses can really aid in transmitting light through the tube. Now, interestingly, when you get right down to it, the human eye can accept about five millimeters of light. Essentially, that means that your iris at, at the widest open point is about five millimeters. So it's not a whole lot, but... Five millimeters is, is a whole lot of light. And if you've got a scope, and let's say it's a it's a, a 3 to 10 by 40. Well, if you crank that scope up to 10 power and you've got a 40 millimeter front objective to determine what the light transmission is, just divide the 10 into 40. And it's 4. So even there at, at 10 power, you're still not going to get all the light that your, your eye can see. Now, if you back that off to, say, 8 divide eight into uh, to 40, that's five. And that's the amount of light of transmission that's coming through there, five millimeters of light. Your eye can fully see that five millimeters of light and it'll uh, 
it'll aid you in, in taking that animal in, in a maybe a, a, a darker uh, late evening, early morning situation, depending on where you're hunting and depends upon the legal shooting hours. Uh, you know, in most places I go, it's uh, from half hour before official sunup to half an hour after official sundown. But there are also places I've hunted, like in Canada, that uh, are rather in, in Iowa, particularly in years past. Legal shooting time is from official sunup to official sundown. And uh, I know there are some other states that are the same way. Here in Texas, we have a half hour before sunup and a half hour afterwards. So it gives us a little bit more time. And there are two times that I found that some of these really big whitetails move. And that's a lot of times that last few moments of light, but then also right during the middle part of the day of uh say from 10 to about three o'clock i've actually probably shot more big whitetail bucks and during that time frame than i have any other time and that doesn't mean that i don't it's the only time i hunt because i get out there well before daylight and want to be settled when that first light legal shooting light comes up and i'm going to stay until the legal shooting light is over with and maybe even set up there for a little bit longer and and see what i could see not that i would be shooting anything but just to see what comes by and um so that light transmission becomes pretty critical in terms of in those poor light conditions, if you will. Again, the human eye can accept about five millimeters of light. Uh, and if you've got a scope that's uh, uh, it's got a, even a, with a 50 millimeter objective and, a, and you crank it up to 25, that's what you would probably need, 550, you know, 525. You're still going to get only 5 millimeters light, but for the most part, those scopes don't have 50 millimeter front objectives at those extremely high uh, uh, magnification kind of things. So scopes are kind of a personal thing. Here recently, Trigicon has come up with some absolutely fantastic scopes. One of my, my all-time favorite ever scope is their is their line of AccuPoint scopes. Now these have a tritium point of light. and It's a natural point of light right where the two crosshairs intersect. Uh, available both in green and, and, and red and, and I found that green works best for me. I've used this scope a lot in a lot of different situations. Everything from hunting black hogs to black bear to uh, pronghorn antelope to a whole lot of other things and I've used it as a dangerous game scope too, hunting in Africa where I'm hunting Cape Buffalo and Cape Buffalo being black and sometimes black on black using black crosshairs. It's kind of hard to find exactly where that, where those two horizontal and vertical crosshairs cross. So that little point of light that's there that is a natural light and it doesn't require, just require sunlight to be into a, a, a reservoir kind of thing as opposed to a, a battery. So you don't have to worry about the battery going out on you. But uh, to me, that's probably my all-time favorite is is that, it is my all-time favorite, is the, the AccuPoint scopes that Trigicon does. Uh, to me, they're the finest on the market. I've used them in so many different places. Quite frankly, uh, a little over a year ago, almost two years ago, coming this fall now, I shot a Boone and Crockett whitetail in Alberta with Ron Nemechek's uh, North River Outfitting. There the season runs to a half hour after sunset, and with about five minutes re remaining of the legal shooting time, actually about ten minutes legal shooting time, on a very, very overcast day, 
this buck walked out into an open field and because I was using that Trigicon scope with that little point of light right where the two crosshairs intersect or the crosshairs intersect, I was able to make an unbelievably accurate shot with, with that particular scope with a 300 wind mag with a 200 grain ELDX Hornady. Of course, I don't hardly use anything anymore except for Hornady in all my hunts simply because there's no need to. They're they're the it's the best ammo and the best bullets I've I've ever used and I've used a lot of them in the past. So my combination of, of Hornady ammo and, and Trigicon scopes I, I can't say enough about. Now with these new new hunts that are sorry, new hunts and new scopes, working on several different guns. I've got a two eighty Ackley improved that uh Ruger put together in an M seven seven that I really like that I'm shooting some of, also the same gun in a 6.5 by 55 Swede. And then two, uh, I've got a, uh, I've got a, another gun, a 280 Remington. Some of these scopes will be them buying, and I'm in the process of trying to buy three Huron scopes, Trigicon Huron scopes right now. Uh, we'll go on those three guns, and then I'll have a few other guns that, I really like, I've got several Ruger number ones that I just absolutely adore and, and love to hunt with that I'll probably switch out scopes and, you know, if I can make a little extra money here and there, I'll probably buy another, another Trigicon scope to mount on one of those others. But right now is an excellent time to do that and, and to get ready. And I know ammo is kind of tough to come by and, and whereas in the past I might have shot a, you know, a five shot group at a hundred, a five shot group at 200 you know, and 300 and 400, and, and then if I'm shooting long range, shoot, you know, a little bit farther. What I'm doing these days is I'll, I'll sight in with whatever it takes. And I found that because the Trigicon scopes track real well, sighting in has become a easier using their scopes. So I sight in with maybe two, three at the most. After I do that, I may shoot a second shot and then I'll move to 200 yards. And rather than doing a five shot group, I may shoot a two shot group. Yeah, or maybe just shoot one of them if it hits exactly where I want it to and move to 300 yards. So in an effort to save a little bit of ammo and, and this is just a, this is a, 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 a temporary thing. Unfortunately, a lot of people that are buying ammo these days that they go to the sporting goods store and the gun store and they say they got five boxes or something and they really only need one box to get them into the, the hunting season. They'll buy all five and they're gone. So hopefully people will kind of get off this binge buying of trying to buy every box of ammo that comes across the shelves. And if that happens, we'll be back a whole lot quicker to normal to having ammo on the different shelves of, of all different varieties. There, there's really no need at this point to hoard those and hoard that ammo. And, and uh, like I say, if you can get by with a box of shells or two boxes of shells, you know, get those, but leave the other shells for somebody else that, that may need them almost as much, or maybe when you get right down to it, maybe they need them more than you do. But uh, in so doing, I think we can get past this, this temporary ammunition shortage that we seemingly have right now a whole lot quicker. So it's about time to uh, to, to load my stuff. To I've got a couple of different things I'm going to take with me on the fishing trip, and uh, as I said, want to try to shoot some footage while we're there for a sportsman's life to show you what the fishing was like. Want to try to record a podcast that kind of in the moment kind of thing with with Chris Moody and and Luke Clayton and I, and and uh, 
shoot a bunch of photographs as well, too. And the bottom line of all this is to try to hold, put a whole bunch of crappie and a legal limit of crappie and a legal limit of, of catfish into my cooler to take home for my wife, my family, and I to enjoy. Springtime is here. Turkey season's going on. Fabulous time to go fishing. Now's the time to go get you that Trigicon scope that you've been dreaming about and putting on your new rifle or, or maybe replacing the scope that you have on an existing rifle. And if you can, grab a box of Hornady and, and uh, you know, their Ruger rifles are always available out there. So uh, I've got a couple of them I've got my eye on that uh, I want to try to use this fall. And Still looking for one of them that I've kind of been looking for for a long time, and a Ruger number one that's uh, they don't make it in that particular caliber right now. But they've got Lee Clay, uh, sorry Lee Newton, a uh, very dear friend of mine, looking for it, and, and uh, all those things are they're things to do right now. So until we get a chance to get together next week, hopefully over the fishing trip that we've been I've been telling you about, enjoy the outdoors. Thank the good Lord for. Fact that we live here in the USA, we have problems here, but it's still the the best and finest place. And say a few prayers for the troops out there that have supported us all these many years to allow us to be able to do what we do these days and continue continue doing so. And we'll see you next week right here around the DSC campfire. DSC's Campfires with Larry Wysoon has also been brought to you by Texas Wildlife Association. Working for tomorrow's wildlife today. Texas raised hunting products. The scent gods. Can attract boots for the trails less traveled. Voight, the finest in hunting gear. Pyramid Air for all things air gun. And Ripcord Rescue Travel Protection.